This past week, uh, the Supreme Court began its hearing of a case that would effectively overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. And that's what we, we pray. We pray indeed that God would do that, that that would be overturned, uh, that children in the womb would be protected and would thrive. And as a church, likewise, we support Heartbeat Pregnancy Center and we support many ministries that improve the quality of life of the living. Many that choose abortion find themselves believing this myth that if they're to do so, if they're to terminate the pregnancy, their personal autonomy will lead to hope, a peace, a joy, and a chosen love. Advent is a reminder that it is only in Christ. It is only in His first coming, and we look forward to His second coming, the second Advent, that true hope and true joy and true peace and true love may be found. Babel in this text is a picture of a people that have a perfect united language, a perfect united earthly goal and earthly mission, and yet they will never achieve true hope true peace, true joy, and true love. It is only by what God has come down to us, Emmanuel, the one we were singing about, God with us, in whom we may have true life, forgiveness of sins and adoption. As believers, we have this good news. We understand by God's grace this good news, and we're the ones commissioned to love and to proclaim this good news. In Babel, we note this morning then of the danger of what it is to long for the things by only earthly measures. And so we look at the very beginning of these verses and we're reminded of this central truth that true peace will not come from perfect communication. We see in Babel so many things are imaged and, and described out for us. Now, as good Bible students, when we look at this text and we see this first understanding that even if we could communicate perfectly with each other, we would actually not have true peace. When we look at this text in Genesis chapter 11, we note, if we're just reading through the book of Genesis, it seems kind of unusual because we have chapter 10 in which it describes the nations that have been spread out. But we read chapter 11 and it tells us how the nations were spread out. So it feels like kind of one step forward, one step back, giving an insight, which is common for the authors to do in, in the Hebrew language as well. It's common writing style. So chapter 10, if we're reading through, gives us an insight of how the, where the nations are. Chapter 11 gives us how they got there. In chapter 12, a text we've referenced so many times with the covenant with Abraham that God makes, based upon not Abraham and man's faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. We get later to Genesis 15, and we see that Abraham believed God, and God accredited to him as righteousness. So even though we look at this text, and as we heard our elder Ralph Busby a moment ago read it for us, there can be a little bit of, how are these people doing this again? United in rebellion against God. And yet God does not destroy them with the flood. There's not a second flood scene that happens in chapter 11 and 12. But chapter 12 does not have a flood scene. Chapter 12 has the seed of true blessing that will come upon these disobedient people, these depraved people. And that's good news for us. That's good news for all people, that whoever looks to Christ finds forgiveness and hope. True peace comes down. It will never be climbed up to. 
The people are with one language. Moses, make sure we understand that in verse 11. Look at this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. The net translates this, I think, a little bit more literally for us. One lip and one set of words. The idea is there is complete unity. There's beautiful, perfect communication going on. Now, we talk about communication. We know when we miscommunicate, there's a number of things. Communication theory, right? There's a, there's a sender, there's a receiver that you're trying to speak to, and then there's all this noise in the middle that can distract us. There's so many different examples of noises that we can have. There can be simple miscommunication. As a matter of fact, if you've ever had a miscommunication that's led to conflict with someone in this room, would you look at them right now? The challenge, look at them. And it really disturbs me when so many of you are still looking at me <laughs> instead of the other person you should be looking at right now. Yeah, we have all know what it is to have a miscommunication that leads to conflict over time. And we all know what it is to even have, we can be using the same word, but the, 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 the range of the word meaning, we can be meaning something totally different. And that difference leads us to say, oh, that's what you're talking about. We're, we're, we, we, we praise God that we're able to be a multi-generational church. But as a multi-generational church, too, sometimes we can say things that maybe that word means something different to somebody else. And so we try to understand what did you mean by that, right, different cultures, different meanings, different practices that we can misunderstand. But that's not the problem here at Babel. The people are united in language. Perhaps the greatest barrier that we have naturally is that we might have speaking a different language from someone else. The people are united in their language and their communication. Moses makes clear in this description that they're of one mind and one heart, one understanding. There's nobody along, going along with this building of the tower scene by which they say, oh, I thought we were just building this cool tower. It was being built for a specific purpose. The people had a unity of heart and mind in communication. Exactly what we put the elbow grease into in, in relationships and marriages and friendships to seek understanding together. And we know that makes our relationships better and healthier and more fruitful. The Bible reminds us no matter how much work we put in, how much unity, and we should seek to understand and to communicate and be close to others. As a matter of fact, some of the missionaries that you support, when you give to Grace Bible Church, you're also supporting some of the missionaries or the missionaries that Grace supports. And one of those missionaries is working incredibly hard. I'm not sure if I can share their name, so, uh, but they're working in the Middle East to be able to help put Scripture into the language of a people that don't have Scripture in their language. So they're working for understanding and they're giving up their lives to this mission. It's good to seek understanding. But we should not come to the foolish mistake to think if we gain perfect understanding, it's then that we'll have peace. Babel's a reminder that even if we have a unity of mind and unity of communication, we cannot level up ourselves to true peace. We can't look and say, if I just do well enough in my schooling and I get this part of my career under my feet, that's great. My next part will be my relationships and I'll get my friendships and all those things and I'll stack them and I'll stack this season of life and I'll want to live here and I'll want to drive this and I'll want to do this. And we'll think if I get all these little stones of peace and line them up and then we take a bigger picture and we look at our nation and we say, well, we just get this person here and this person here and this person here, we'll arrive at true peace. But Babel's a reminder that true peace has to come down 
It cannot be climbed up to. As the old saying goes, true peace is not in our toolbox. Babel reminds us not only of the reality that true peace will not come from perfect communication, but true peace will also not come from earthly kingdom goals. It will not come from earthly kingdom goals. Babel in chapter 11 of Genesis is the United Nations dream. A people united, this one global unity taking place. Unity of purpose, unity of language, and yet no true peace. As the story unfolds, we see in verse 3, look back in verse 3, come let us make bricks, or literally it's brick bricks and bake baking. This chapter is filled with really neat language things. I want to show you one of those things here that's called a chiasm. Chiasm, think of the Greek letter, which probably doesn't help us that much. If you're in a sorority, you're like, hey, it's paid off. Okay. So you got chi, right? It's, it's our X. You see it with Xmas, right? Xmas. It's, I don't think it's meant to offend people. Maybe some people use it that way. I'm not going to get into that. Brent, bad choice. Okay. But think chi. Think Christ, Christmas. So these chiasms make an X. Think of the first part of the X. And we could go down with as many letters as you want to. And some people look at the writings, especially in the Old Testament, and they can go what they call chiastic crazy. They can see a chiasm in every little scene, and it may not always be the case. But a chiasm looks like this. You've got this pattern of A, and it matches somewhere later on in the story down here. That You have either the same word or the same theme. And then your B's like this, and your C's like this, and your D's like this, and all the way down to your central idea right here that's in the text. And it doesn't mean it's pure poetry, communicating literal, real truth, but also in this beautiful format. So look at the text. I want to look at this just really quick together so we can see some of these patterns so you understand what I'm communicating a little clearer, I think, than I did in the first service. Look at verse 1. We'll note some of these comparisons. You'll need to look in your text for this. Look at verse 1. All the earth had one language. Now look down in verse 9. The language of the whole earth was what? It was confused. You see the pattern? Look down in verse 2. You have the word there. And then down in verse 8, from there. You look at verse 3, we have C, one to another. Down in verse 7, everyone, the language of his neighbor, one to another. D, come let us brick bricks, let us make bricks. And then verse 7, come let us confuse, come let us, come let us. You see the pattern there. We keep going. You look down in verse 4, let's make for ourselves. That was the cry that man made, right? They're making for themselves a great name. Compared to verse 5, that the humans built. That's what they're doing. Verse, uh, continuing on there in verse 4, back there in verse 4, a city and a tower. And then in verse 5, the city and the tower. And then what's the central idea we have in verse 5? And the Lord came down to see. It kind of forms this cool poetic component that goes in here called a chiasm. So this chapter is filled with so many unique insights. But in all of these things, it is right in the middle of it is the Lord coming down. And the whole lead up to this is man working as hard as he can, men and women united, language united, one heart purpose, true unity and peace together. Can you imagine a season of true unity and peace? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? That's a part of what we look forward to in the, the coming, the new heavens and the new earth one day. 
Imagine Nacogdoches County right now with no violence, no corruption, no exploitation of the poor. It'd be incredible, wouldn't it? In Genesis 11, they had it. But they did not have true peace. Why? Because humanity was united in their rebellion against God. Remember what they did here? They longed to stop. They settle in this area and they make for themselves a second Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the scene of Eden and God gives them a command, do not eat. And what do they do? They disregard God's word and they eat. So too now in Genesis 11, all of the people are united. They come in from the east. They gather in an area that a Bible atlases tell us would be a part of present-day Iran, Iraq, and Kuwait. In Genesis chapter 9, look back at chapter 9, verse 1, so you know I'm not joking with this. In chapter 9, verse 1 and 9-7, the same command that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion over the earth, spread out over the earth. This command is right here. So when we think of what Pastor John preached last week with the death of Abel and the judgment upon Seth, what's happened since last week as we jump forward down to chapter 11 of Genesis in this Advent series is God has brought the flood, this global judgment upon humanity that was united in their wickedness, doing what was right in their own eyes. And God brought judgment upon the entirety of the earth And he promised he would not do that again by way of the flood. But now here we are, and the same command was given in chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 7, spread out over the earth. And that's when we get chapter 11, in which all of humanity is united to say, thanks God, but we're going to go ahead and settle here. And instead of spreading out, we're going to go ahead and spread ourselves upwards. We will build a tower to the heavens, the text says. Humanity is united in the rebellion against God. True peace will never come from earthly goals. They're using all of their time and all of their talents and all of their treasures. They're united. United in language, united in purpose and mission. But their unity is united. Their, their unity comes from a rebellion against God's word. That's where their unity comes from. This scene sounds so similar. Write down Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, there's so many similarities to here that we have in Genesis chapter 11. The scene in Acts chapter 2, if you're unfamiliar, we, we got the, the Spirit pours out. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, repenting and believing upon Christ. And the people are so moved and the Lord works in them in such a way that they're going and they're selling. They're, they're not being commanded to, right? It's not some government system. They're being willed by the Lord internally to sell of their possessions and to give to meet the needs of the believers. In this incredible way, the people here are incredibly united. Different cultures, but now incredibly united. Perfect unity. Back in Genesis 11 right here, we've got the people in complete unity. Unity of purpose, unity of mission, unity of language, 
What's the difference between Acts chapter 2 in the, New, in the New Testament church right away and Genesis chapter 11? Here at Babel, their unity comes because it's us versus God. In Acts chapter 2, what God does is their unity comes from above. Their unity is because they've come to know Christ. They've found peace, shalom, peace with God. And because they've found peace with God, forgiveness of sins and adoption in Christ, this living water is flowing out from their lives. They care about their neighbors. They're united with one another because of their relationship with the Lord spills out into their careers and their work and their families and their neighbors. Their burden for others because they first have peace with God. Here at Babel, they have no peace with God. Their unity comes because they do not want to do what God tells them to do. Humbling words. Now when the text says that they desired to build up to the heavens, look at verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now heavens typically can mean one of three things. That's why it's usually in the plural for us. It can mean first the sky. So when you look outside the sky, they built a tower up into the sky. So impressive that it would be the, this legacy. Second, it could be space. Or third, it could be what you, we think of when we usually say heaven, right? And you can read commentaries where they debate which one they're talking about here. I'm going to argue that for our time, what matters is the motive. What's the motive? Look at the text. Look with me. What's the motive for this? Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Why? He says, or they say with a united voice and heart, let us make a name for ourselves. Why? The reader asks, why do all of this work? Why are you united in this goal with this purpose? lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Lest we have to obey God. Unity apart from unity with our Creator and Sustainer is always a counterfeit unity. Because what's not in our toolbox. That's what makes Advent so sweet for us to slow down. Our tendency to work toward building hope and peace and joy and love and finding things, be it in our season of life or our career or our relationships. When the irony is that the perfect peace has come down from above. True hope has come down from above. True love come down from above. True joy come down from above. And is yours and mine if we will but trust Christ. That's the beauty of our God. Babel is this direct contrast for them. That all of these things add up in this tremendous way that leads to that very center. So, and that chiasm right here, everything leads up, boom, right to this pivot. And what's the pivot of all the things we've seen so far? All the works of humankind to get up to God. That sounds impressive, doesn't it? 
What's verse 5 say? What did God do? Did God have to look up to see the tower? <gasps> Whoa! Wow. Did God have to look down to see the tower? Well, yes. But the text said the tower was so unoppressive to the Lord that he had to come down to look at it. And the way that you, when you're mowing your yard, you're mowing and all of a sudden you, you mow over a piece of grass, you say, huh, there was an anthill there. Huh. Babel, the best of man's efforts, is as an anthill bragging about being three or four inches off the ground. The Lord said, huh, look at that. And so too, our best of our deeds is as filthy rags before God. We can impress others, but we can never impress a righteous, holy, faithful, and just God. And that's good news. Isn't that good news that God's not impressed by any of us in this room? He's not impressed by me or any of us? That's good news. Advent, the coming of the Christ. He came down. What a fitting sentence. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And he declared in verse 6, this is but the start of their doing. This is but the start. God came down and not simply to examine the structural integrity of the tower. He didn't come to learn something from man. But instead, he judged not only the tower, but he judged their hearts. He gave a judgment about their very hearts. He says in verse 6, look at this. And the Lord said, Yahweh, the Lord God, you see all the letters are capitalized, the personal name of the Lord, the one who's revealed himself to Moses. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. In verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, there are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Does God sound like a downer to you? Think of the medical advances that could have been created in all that time till today if all the people still taught one language and advances in technologies. Think of all the good that could have come for a people united in purpose and mission. But the Lord comes and He confuses their language. You see, it's not good because their unity is in division toward God. It will bring forward acts of wrath and judgment that will merit a global judgment once again, just like what we saw in the flood. And so God's act of confusing their language is merciful judgment people in their sin against God, every stone that they would have used to build the tower was built from a motive of a rule of their own life. Every stone was sin that was placed for the tower. And God, who had the right to judge them dead again, He mercifully confused their language. And it's in that act of judgment we come to chapter 12. Even though they're spread out into the nations, God will work a redeeming plan by the promise of the one that will come by the covenant of Abraham, the promised seed, the new covenant we now know in Christ's blood. 
How merciful and patient and gracious is our God. He's worthy of our worship and our life. He's worthy of forgiving one another. He's worthy of longing for peace with one another. And He's worthy of the awkwardness of explaining the gospel to others that may reject us. But that's okay. Because you offer living water when you communicate the gospel. That's what we see in our text today. All of these things lead us to this climactic understanding that true peace will only come from the heavenly kingdom above. If it can't come from a perfect understanding of language with one another, and it can't come from earthly kingdom goals, then it must come from the heavenly kingdom above. True peace. True peace must come from above. The Lord's coming down was an act that would actually lead toward true peace. I don't think we like to think that a lot. But sometimes the judgments that come into a person's life may actually be a demonstration of God's mercy and the way that He works. So when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 12, let chapter 11 be tied to our mind of God was working this missionary purpose. And in the New Testament, this great commission is given. Israel was to be so consumed with the things of God that they were to be a light to the nations, the same nations that were made a diversity of languages and cultures and spread out here because of their rebellion against God. That God is a missionary God pursuing God. And He uses us as we proclaim this good news that many might come to know Him. He says in verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Every one of those stones an act of sin and rebellion against God. And what happens the second their language is confused? And the same thing that happens when we have misunderstandings with our friends and our coworkers and others. Conflict. They know that their ability to build a great name for themselves is done. They can't work together anymore. And they spread out. And in their spreading out, whose word do they actually obey? God's word. It's the judgment of God that leads them to do what they were supposed to do in the beginning. Now, if you're a parent or grandparent or you've ever worked with kids... Have you ever told your child to do something or told that child to do something and they chose not to do it and then they experience the consequences? And while they're experiencing the consequences, you're fighting back every part of you that says, well, if you'd have just listened to what I said, this wouldn't have happened. Think of how much easier this would have been if you just would have trusted me and done so. We probably shouldn't say that while our kids are bleeding and crying. I've done that before. It's not a great, it's not a teaching moment. Not an apt teaching moment. But God in His glorious working accomplishes His plan despite the rebellion of man. Just like in Exodus, we've seen despite the hardened heart and the rebellion of Pharaoh, God will accomplish His plan to lead forward His people like old glory, like this geyser exploding forward. They could have been spared the judgment of this act if they would have simply abided in the word and way of the Lord. But God is kind and merciful. 
coming down from above. Hope, peace, joy, and love is yours. Regardless of what you've done or been done to you, if you will but know Christ. Look at the contrast. I want you to look over to the New Testament here before next steps. Look in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you turn over to verse 76, we'll read a portion of Zechariah's prophecy when we see exactly what this and who this peace from above is and what he'll do as a people will finally have a peace with God and that peace will spill out in their lifestyle and in their language and their goals and their purposes. This transformative peace, the shalom that comes ultimately only from above but is available to all that will but trust in him. If we look at Zechariah's prophecy, this is the father of John the Baptist. He gives this word back in verse 67 as a reminder. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, and just for time's sake, look down at verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of, let's say it together, peace. That's what the Lord does. A perfect peace. Guiding a people into the way of peace, as John the Baptist would prepare that way for the Lord, the promised one who is to come. And as believers, we celebrate the one who was to come again. Jerome, if you sit right there in the front, you're good. There you go, my man. Thank you. I got your back. You. you got it. Hallelujah. As we look at all these things, we could quote other texts, and we'll see some of these in our New Testament, in our uh, Christmas Eve service. But as the angels gather and they sing triumphantly, they sing of peace for whom the Lord's favor rests. In Isaiah, uh, Jesus, the world promised one, is called the Prince of Peace. So believer in Advent, we slow down and remember the true source of peace and hope and joy and love and the commissioning that we've received in Christ to proclaim the hope that is ours and the gift from heaven, from above. Isn't God good? He's worthy of our praise, isn't he? As we come to our next steps, this leads us with a transformative question before us. First and foremost, we see in the Babylonians who sought their own glory, and therein they would never find true peace. As an application of this, the greatest legacy that we can build is Christ's. You believe that's true? The greatest legacy we can give our lives to, regardless of our age, regardless of our background, regardless of our gender, the greatest legacy we can give our life to building is Christ. And so I want to encourage you as a challenge this week, find somebody else to partner together to memorize 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As a reminder, ah yes, that's the way. That's the way of peace. His glory with the giftings that he's given me. This leads us secondly to this question, would you pray for an opportunity to share how Christ's work has brought you true peace? 
pray for an opportunity to share of how you found true peace. It's your testimony. That's how God's given you peace in, in difficult seasons. Because you remember that you're not loved more by what you've done, but because you're loved perfectly in Christ before God. We spoke of that text in Luke chapter 1 of how He would come and deliver them to those in darkness. He would show them the way of peace and the light. Paul says in Colossians 1, like this, that God has, to all those who believe, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As you struggle, believer, back and forth with peace that seems to be seeping through your fingers like water you try to grasp, remember that you are forgiven. You are His and He is yours. True peace from above. And finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We have the opportunity now to adore and worship Him. We sing this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. He's the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. But I want to read one of the verses here that we're going to sing as a church body to the Lord, the risen and resurrected and ascended Savior who will come again one day. O come, O King of nations, bind and won the hearts of all mankind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our King of peace. Would you stand with me, church family?